Well, good morning. You can go ahead and take your Bible and turn to Haggai. That's what we'll be this morning. We'll be other places besides Haggai today, but we're going to look at a couple different, really one primary thought today. But before we jump into that, uh, we are excited about this week and looking forward to a wonderful week in the Lord's house. And uh, I know my boys are very excited about it. They're not here today only because uh, with my wife feeling how she's feeling and a couple of them still having runny noses, we thought one more day would probably be wise. And so we decided to give them that one more day. But they are planning to be here. And hopefully, we're praying that some of their friends and cousins can be here as well. Uh, I think if I, if I was looking right, we had one of our posts on the Trinity Baptist Facebook page that had just right at 500 different folks that it had reached, and then we had our promoted page. Uh, when I checked it last night, I think it was up to 2,200 folks that had been reached uh, with that. As we know, however, that doesn't mean we'll have 2,200 children. Uh, we wish that's what it meant. I don't know what we'd do with them all, uh, but uh, we wish that's what it meant, but that's not what it means. It just means that the Word's getting out there, uh, and we're thankful for that. Uh, I do uh, want to say this. I, I The reason it took me a little while, I was sharing with Katie on uh, yet, uh, Friday, that um, the reason it took a little bit, Facebook has added a new uh, page that you have to sign when you want to advertise on Facebook, and I, I struggled uh, with what to do with that. It was a non-discrimination page that you have to assign or that you have to sign off on, and I went back and forth, back and forth on how I wanted to approach that. And so what I finally decided was, I started reading the fine print, and basically the actual ad itself could be non-discriminating. Uh, and it doesn't really say anything about what you teach at the or what you say at the uh, event that you're promoting. Uh, and so with that said, I was able to sign it because I, I knew that our, our flyer was just what it was. It's just a flyer, an invitation. Uh, but that little signature on that page was not in any way, shape, or form going to dictate what I say or preach here at our church. And so I finally, uh, it wasn't until Thursday that I finally got that squared away in my heart and decided we'd go ahead and sign that so we could get that advertisement posted. But uh, unfortunately, the world we're living in is getting uh, stranger and stranger by the minute. And the different hoops and the different uh, things that we're going to face uh, in the future are going to be quite interesting. It's something I talked about with a couple of our men. Uh, I believe it was last week that this coming business meeting, we're going to have to address some things. Uh, that may not seem like a big deal to us now, but I'm here to tell you they're going to be a big deal, and it's some things that uh, we need to address with our church bylaws. We actually will need to be adding some things to our church bylaws right quickly. Uh, you cannot wait until you're in a predicament to add to your church bylaws. That's one thing I've learned. Uh, if you try to wait until there's a confrontation or something of that nature, and then you try to add it to your church bylaws real quick, that doesn't work. They have to be in your church bylaws before conflict ever arises in order for them to stick in the court of law. Uh, based on the decision that our uh, Supreme Court made over the past couple of weeks, uh, if, God forbid, we ever had someone on staff here at our church, uh, 
albeit a paid, uh, let's say we had a, let's say that our church grew and we had 400 people coming and let's say we had a paid youth leader or we had a paid uh, person that was in, in, in charge of our music, uh, something like that. I don't know when that day would ever come, but if it did come and one of those folks decided that they were a homosexual, we could not fire them based upon that ruling. Uh, or else our church could be sued and our doors could be shut. And so we've got to add some things into our bylaws, into our church constitution to protect against that um, now instead of waiting until that day comes. And so I'm just as frustrated about it as you are. I think it's hogwash. I think it's sin. I think it's unrighteousness. I think we're dealing with a culture that's lost, that knows nothing about Christ, that knows nothing about the Word of God. And that is why we're in the boat that we're in. Now what do we do? Well, we address it, and we fight back, and we do what we're supposed to do uh, based on the Word of God. And much of what I have to say both in Sunday school and in the worship service has to do with some of those things. And so we'll jump in here. We've looked in Haggai, and I hope, man, I tell you, I, I know I keep saying this, but I just never dreamed that our study in Ezra would lead us to Haggai. And then once we got to Haggai, I had no clue. And I've read Haggai many times. But I guess I just, it's, it's two chapters long. I mean, when you're reading Haggai, and it's two chapters long, you just, you just read it. You don't really focus on it too much. And uh, now that I've had some time to focus on this book, this may be, of all the books of the Old Testament, perhaps one of the most applicable books to what we're going through that we could possibly be studying at a time like this. And I have so enjoyed uh, each phase, each section of this book, and it has reinvigorated and relit the fire in my soul about doing what God wants me to do. Um, it, is, it has refocused me on seeing what is important and what is necessary and what is needful out of me as a father in my home, as a pastor in our church, uh, as a leader in our community. All of those things combined, it has just lit that fire back inside of me to see Exactly what Haggai was trying to say to the leaders of Israel in that day is exactly what I needed to hear right now today. And nothing's different about today than, than what has been the case in the past few weeks. I think today's lesson will be very applicable. This is part six in our study of the great prophets that are mentioned in the book of Ezra. I do believe this will be our last lesson today uh, out of the book of Haggai. And hopefully we'll be jumping back to the book of Ezra after today to move on from here. So far, we've seen in Haggai that God is the source of our conviction. Number two, we saw that God is the supervisor of our conduct. Number three, God is the stoker of our courage. And number four, God is the stirrer of our considerations. We saw last week and the week before that we are to consider who our counsel is. Very important. Uh, I've got some family members that they watch the History Channel and they watch uh, the Discovery Channel, and that's their counselors. That's where they get all their information. Uh, if somebody in there says that, uh, you know, that the Ark of the Covenant was found in this location or that maybe the body of Jesus is in this location or whatever, it, whatever the History Channel says, whatever Discovery Channel says, that's what they believe. That's who their counselors are. I've got other folks that I love dearly that have gone off to college, and they went to college a stern steady Christian, they came back an atheist. And they allowed their professors to be their counselors. Very important thing to consider who your counsel is. Number two, we saw the need to consider our chastisement. 
Sometimes we need to take a step back from the circumstances of our lives and realize that maybe, just maybe, God's trying to show us something. Maybe God's trying to do something in our lives. We need to consider that. And then what we looked at last week is that we need to consider our capabilities in Christ. You and God make up the majority. We need more Davids is what we need. If you want to know what the answer is to the problem that we're facing, it's that we need more Gideons. It's that we need more Moseses and more Aarons. I mean, I could go through the list of the spiritual warriors of the Bible, which is what this series is all about. And I'll tell you what we need in our day is spiritual warriors. Men and women alike that will take a stand in a spirit of love with a great deal of wisdom. People who know how to pray. People who know how to soul win. People who know how to compete in the arena of ideas. People who know how to articulate not only what they believe, but why they believe it. That's what we need. And we need a whole bunch of them. Because we're living in a tough time. And in light of the times that we're living in, I, I wanted to ask this question to start off a lesson this morning. Who is really in control? Have you, have you asked that, yourself that question lately? Who's really in control? Now, I had to take some time over the last couple days and really think through this question because if we're not careful, we will convince ourselves that there are certain people in control or certain groups in control that really aren't in control. I'm going to throw out some examples of what I mean by that. Some people would say that different government agencies are in control. Groups like labor unions, bureaucracies and bureaucrats in Washington, D.C., or maybe CEOs of these big corporations. Some folks would say that those are the people that are in control. You want to know who's pulling all the strings? That's where you're going to find them is in those groups right there. There are other people that might say that the people pulling all of the strings throughout our world and throughout our society right now are these secret societies like the Freemasons, the Bilderbergs, the Illuminati, the Knights Templar, the list goes on and on and on. Of the different ones that are pulling the strings behind curtains and many might say that they're the ones that are... You want to know who's really in control? That's You look in that group right there and you're going to find the ones that are really in control. Others would say that it's the power and the powerful and wealthy individuals of our generation. Men like George Soros and Bill Gates, maybe the Koch brothers or the Clintons. The list goes on and on and on. Those big wealthy donors, those are the ones that are really in control. Whatever it is that they want to get done, somehow it gets done. They're the ones in control. And as you think through that, in a lot of ways, I completely understand the perspective. I can get on board with some of that perspective. But at the end of the day, for the Christian, for the child of God, it does us a great deal of good to remember who's really in control. It does us a great deal of good to not get caught up in the emotions of the moment and to be reminded that we serve the one who's really in control. It's easy to forget these days, isn't it? Because it seems like everything's out of control, don't it? It seems like either everything's out of control or those groups or those entities that I just mentioned are absolutely spot on in control. And it, it does us good to step back 
and to remember who's really in control. God's Word clears up this question of who's in control. And as I thought through it, I I guess in light of what I've just said about these different groups, the government agencies, the big corporations, the secret societies, and the, the powerful and wealthy individuals, I had never taken a moment and stepped back and compared different issues and situations in Scripture that attest to the fact that God is sovereign over all of those groups, over all of those entities. What is the sovereignty of God? The sovereignty of God is the aspect of His character by which He holds sole authority and control over all things. Now, some would say, well, if, if what you're saying is true, then God is in control of evil. No, 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 no. God is not the one that's guiding evil. He's not the one that's directing evil. But you better, ha- you better believe God has a grip on evil. Does that make sense? God has a grip on evil. In other words, evil will never be outside the boundaries of what God is able to handle. Why? Because God is sovereign. There is not one thing that catches God by surprise and there's not one thing that gets God a little concerned or out of sorts, if you will. My dad, throughout the years, one of his favorite sayings, and I've shared it with you before, I had to say it to last night to one of my boys, don't panic till you see me panic. When you see me panic, and, you, and I, I jokingly told the one that I was talking to because um, the storms were coming, and I love storms. I mean, I... I'm the guy that I just, I can't wait for the storm to get here and I don't want the storm to leave. I, that's just how I am. I just love storms. And I'm trying to instill that in my children so that they don't live a life of fear to storms. Because I've had ones in my past that are petrified. And then their kids are petrified and their grandkids are petrified. It's a generational thing. And so I, I like storms. I enjoy them. And uh, my boys are still learning how to enjoy storms. They're not there yet. So I told him, I said, don't panic till you see me panic. And I said, no, I want to take it a step further. I said, don't you panic until you see your mother panic. Now, when she starts panicking, the world's falling apart. I panic a good while before she does. But I'll tell you, she is a cool, steady gal. Nothing, nothing tips her off, off center. And so I said, if you see your mother panic, you start panicking. It's perfectly ordinary and fine for you to panic when you see her panicking. You know... It would do us good as children of God to remember, don't panic till you see God panic. God's never going to panic. Nothing's going to ever put God in a state of panic. Why? Because God is sovereign. Ask Egypt. Ask Sodom. Ask Gomorrah. Ask Israel if God is sovereign over governments and their bureaucracies. You know what they'll tell you? God has a handle on this. Whether we like it or not, whether we want it or not, whether we care to acknowledge it or not, God has a handle on all of these things. Look at Exodus chapter number 9. Actually, before you turn out of Haggai, look at Haggai chapter 2 and look at verse number 20. I want to read this to you and then we'll go to Exodus chapter number 9. Haggai chapter 2 verse 20. And again, the word of the Lord came unto Haggai in the four and twentieth day of the month, saying, Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, Who is this? This is the governmental leader of Israel at this time. Nobody's higher than Zerubbabel. There's no more kings. Why? Because 
Israel's under captivity. They're not going to have a king, but they're going to have governors. Zerubbabel is the highest government agency at this point in time in Judah's life, and God is telling Haggai, I want you to say something to Zerubbabel. I will, this is God speaking, I will shake the heavens and the earth, and I will overthrow the throne of kingdoms, and I will destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the heathen, and I will overthrow the chariots and those that ride in them, and the horses and their riders shall come down, every one by the sword of his brother, In that day, saith the Lord of hosts, will I take thee, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Sheltiel, saith the Lord, and I will make thee as a signet, for I have chosen thee, saith the Lord of hosts, period. End of the book. Last thing Haggai is going to say under inspiration of the Holy Spirit are these words. And what I believe that God is teaching in this last portion of what God says For Haggai to say to Zerubbabel, I believe that God is teaching that He is sovereign over our circumstances. God is sovereign over our circumstances. Now turn with me to Exodus chapter number 9. You might hold your place there in Haggai. Hopefully we can get all, I hope we can get all through this today. I don't know if we will or not, but we're going to try real hard. Exodus chapter number 9. And we'll jump in at uh, verse number 8. Exodus chapter 9 and verse number 8. Something to be learned here in this portion of Scripture. The Bible says, And the Lord said unto Moses and unto Aaron, Take to you handfuls of ashes of the furnace, and let Moses sprinkle it toward the heavens in the sight of Pharaoh, and it shall become small dust in, the, in all the land of Egypt, and shall be a boil breaking forth with blains upon man and upon beasts throughout all the land of Egypt. And they took ashes of the furnace and stood before Pharaoh, and Moses sprinkled it up toward heaven, and it became a boil breaking forth with blains upon man and upon beast. I like this verse, verse 11. And the magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils, for the, boils was, for the boil was upon the magicians, and upon all the Egyptians. Now remember up to this point, the magicians have been able to use their own tactics to bring about similar miracles. Sleight of hand, different things, also satanic. I believe demonic forces and powers at work. They were able to, in a small way, match what Moses was doing. But now the magicians are also covered with the boils. They can't even stand before Moses because they're humiliated. They know they're being conquered. They're being defeated. Verse 12, And the Lord hardened... Hold on just a second. Hold on just a second. The Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh? And he hearkened not unto them as the Lord had spoken unto Moses. So God tells Moses to go tell Pharaoh to let the people go. And then the same God that told Moses to tell Pharaoh to let the people go, is also hardening the heart of Pharaoh and not letting them go. What is going on here? Look. Again, verse 13, we'll read into verse 14. And the Lord said unto Moses, Rise up early in the morning and stand before Pharaoh and say unto him, Thus saith the Lord God of the Hebrews, Let my people go that they may serve me. For I will at this time send all my plagues upon thine heart and upon thy servants, and upon thy people, 
that thou mayest know that there is none like me in all the earth. What's going on here? God is going to prove to the entire world once and for all that there is only one sovereign God. And it's going to take him hardening the heart of Pharaoh nine times to get that truth fully sealed up, fully settled. Why is it that after the first miracle Moses did and the first time Moses proclaimed, let my people go, why was it that God hardened the heart of Pharaoh? Because there was plague number two coming and plague number three coming and plague number four coming all the way through those ten plagues that we see performed in this particular portion of Scripture. What was it that God was accomplishing? He was sealing up the truth for all eternity that there is only one true sovereign God. Every single one, and we know this, we, we've known this since we were kids, every single one of these plagues dealt with one of the gods of Egypt. And as God, one by one by one, overcame and destroyed their false gods, He was letting the whole world know the greatest nation on earth who serves these false gods, there is a God who's greater than all of that. We need to remember that, don't we? God is greater than these government agencies. Verse 15, For now I will stretch out my hand that I may smite thee and thy people with pestilence, and thou shalt be cut off from the earth. And in, uh, and in very deed for this cause have I raised thee up. Who's he talking about here? He's talking about Pharaoh. Who raised up Pharaoh in this case? It was God. And what God's saying is, for, the, for this very cause I raised you up. The Bible says that God prepares the wicked for the day of judgment. Who is in control? God is. Who's sovereign? God is. And in every deed for this cause have I raised thee up, for to show in thee my power, and that my name may be declared throughout all the earth. You say, are you saying that God is unjust? No. On the contrary. I'm saying God is perfectly just. God takes a short period of time here the time of the history of Egypt, and he uses this time and raises up Pharaoh ultimately to get this one truth across that he is in control, that there is no God like him. So we could ask Egypt, we could ask Sodom, we could ask Gomorrah, we could ask Israel if God is sovereign, and they will all testify to the fact that he is in fact sovereign over these government agencies. You know, we could also ask the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Antichrist Jews if God is sovereign over secret societies. Do you know there's a secret society in your Bible? There is. You ready? Turn with me to Acts chapter number 23. If there was ever a secret society in your Bible, this is it right here. Acts chapter number 23. I don't know what view you have of these secret societies. I know what my view is. <clears throat> to be very plain with you, the only group I need to be a part of is U-Haul. My church. My church family. And it ain't a secret. I, I don't care if everybody in the whole world knows. In fact, I wish that I could tell everybody in the whole world what happens in this building. There's no secrets about it. I don't need anybody else besides this. Now, again, I don't know what your view is, but that's my view. The Bible says that as, as believers, we're not to be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. 
And when we enter into these societies, whenever we enter into these organizations and these groups, we've got to be careful because in a lot of ways we're binding our hearts and our hands to those that are lost and undone that don't know Christ. You say, preacher, what point are you trying to make? Well, there's a society here, a secret society formed in Acts chapter number 23. We'll jump in at verse number 6. Now, I don't typically do this, but I'm going to do it this morning. I'm going to read this whole portion of Scripture because it's one of the most epic things you're going to read in your Bible. I mean, this is, this is cool stuff going on here. An entire movie could, could literally come out of Acts chapter 23 and what takes place here. So I want you to see it. Look at verse number 6. <clears throat> Forgive my voice this morning. We'll get through it. Verse 6, But when Paul perceived that the one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, I need to set this up for you here before we go too far. The Pharisees and the Sadducees, they both hate Paul. They despise Paul, and they've got him cornered. They're convinced that they're within just moments of being able to put him out of their misery. And Paul perceives that part of the group is Sadducees and part of the group is Pharisees, and so he decides he's going to drum up some conflict between these two groups in order, ultimately, to escape. Super smart, if you ask me. Now let's jump in there, verse 6. But when Paul perceived that the one part was Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Men and brethren, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee. Of the hope and resurrection of the dead, I am called in question. And when he had so said, there arose a dissension between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the multitude was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, neither angel nor spirit, but the Pharisees confess both. And there arose a great cry, and the scribes that were of the Pharisees' part arose and strove, saying, We find no evil in this man. See what he's doing here? But if a spirit or an angel hath spoken to him, let us not fight against God. Verse 10. <clears throat> and when there arose a great dissension, the chief captain, fearing lest Paul should have been pulled in pieces of them, commanded the soldiers to go down and to take him by force from among them and to bring him into the castle. Whoa. So you got this big fight going on, and they're literally pulling at the Apostle Paul in two different directions. And the, 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 the guy in charge, he tells the soldiers, he said, get down there and get Paul out of there before they pull him in pieces. And they bring him up inside the castle. This is so cool. Verse 11. And the night following, the Lord stood by him and said, Be of good cheer, Paul, for as thou hast testified of me in Jerusalem, so must thou bear witness also at Rome. Now at this moment, Paul knows that this is not going to be his last day. He has God's word on the matter. Jesus says to him, You're not going to die here because I've still got work for you to do. We really are immortal till our work on earth is done. Why? Because we serve a sovereign God. A God who is sovereign over our circumstances. We can fear this and we can fear that. We can be concerned about this and concerned about that. But at the end of the day, God is sovereign. You see, what the sovereignty of God does is it eliminates the lack of peace and the lack of joy that we experience as a result of fear. When we accept and understand and recognize that our God is sovereign over our circumstances... At that point, I don't have to be fearful of all the things that I'm generally fearful of. Verse 12, And when it was day, certain of the Jews banded... Now here's the secret society forming. You ready? And when it was day, certain of the Jews banded together and bound themselves under a curse, saying that they would neither eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. Hmm. 
Interesting, isn't it? We hear about some of the things these secret societies do and you think, man, that's weird. That's odd. That's strange. That's, that's wrong. That's evil. That's dark. Well, we see that happening right here, don't we? Look at verse 13. And they were more than 40 which had made this conspiracy. And they came to the chief priests and elders and said, We have bound ourselves under a great curse that we will eat nothing until we have slain Paul. Now therefore ye with the counsel signified to the chief captain that he bring him down unto you tomorrow as though ye would inquire something more perfectly concerning him and we or ever and we or ever he come near are ready to kill him. So what are they figuring out? They're figuring out a way that they can get Paul cornered into this particular area and they're all going to be hiding in wait, all 40 of them, and they're going to jump Paul and they're going to kill him. They've got it all figured out. But there's one thing they fail to take into consideration and that is the fact that Paul serves a sovereign God. Listen to what it says in verse 16. And when Paul's sister's son... I don't know if that excites you. It just, I love this. And when Paul's sister's son, so this is the Apostle Paul's nephew, heard of their lying in wait, he went and entered into the castle. Courageous young man, isn't he? And told Paul. Then Paul called one of the centurions unto him and said, Bring this young man unto the chief captain, for he hath a certain thing to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the chief captain and said, Paul, the prisoner, called me unto him and prayed me to bring this young man unto thee who hath something to say unto thee. Then the chief captain took him by the hand and went with him aside privately and asked him, What is that thou hast to tell me? And he said, The Jews have agreed to desire thee that thou wouldst bring down Paul tomorrow into the council as though they would inquire something of him more perfectly. But do not thou yield unto them, for there, li- for there lie in wait for him of them more than forty men which have bound themselves with an oath <clears throat> that they will neither eat nor drink till they have killed him. And now are they ready, looking for a promise from thee? So the chief captain then let the young men depart, the young man depart, and charged him, See thou tell no man that thou hast showed these things to me. And he called unto him two centurions, saying, Make ready two hundred soldiers to go to Caesarea, and horsemen threescore and ten, and spearmen two hundred at the third hour of the night, and provide them beasts that they may set Paul on and bring him safe unto Felix the governor. It's epic, isn't it? At just the right times and in just the right places. Who was it that had put Paul's nephew in a position to be able to hear what the plan was? It was a sovereign God. Who was it that then made the plan for... Think of the courage that was in this little boy's heart to enter into the castle to get to the Apostle Paul and explain to Paul what's about to take place. Who put that there? Sovereign God. And then for Paul to be able to make a request to the chief of the captains, and for him to actually listen to what's being said, who made that happen? Our sovereign God. All hope at this point seemed lost for the Apostle Paul, save one thing, Paul served a sovereign God. Ask those secret societies if God is sovereign, even over them. And they will admit to you, yes, He is. Ask the powerful Nebuchadnezzar, Pilate, or Belshazzar, if God is sovereign over the rich and powerful. 
You'll remember Belshazzar is the one in Daniel chapter 5 if you get the chance to turn there. Not today, but uh, later on write this reference down. Daniel chapter 5 verses 1 through 31. That chapter deals with Belshazzar who's Nebuchadnezzar's son. Takes over Nebuchadnezzar's place. And he decides that he's going to bolster himself up even greater than Nebuchadnezzar ever was. And at the end of all of it, as he's proud and arrogant, throwing this great big bash, there's a hand that writes on the wall, Mene, Mene, Tekel, Upharsin. And God takes the kingdom of Belshazzar in one night. Most powerful man on earth at the time. Richest man on earth at the time. God takes the kingdom away from him in one night. God uses Daniel to reveal it to him. What's your point, preacher? It's simple. You serve a sovereign God. And as a result of that truth, our hearts can be settled. Not unsettled by what we see, but settled because we know that God is sovereign. He's got this. He's got a handle on this. Prices will be paid. Judgments will be handed out. There's not a one solitary masked individual that God, not only does He know their name, He knows how many hairs are on their head, He knows what's inside their heart. No one's getting away with this. Whatever it is that's unsettling your heart, let this settle your heart today that you serve a sovereign God. Now, with that said, turn back to Haggai. Chapter number 2. Haggai chapter number 2. And I want to work our way through this and see what is God sovereign over? Well, ultimately, He's sovereign over everything. Like I said, there's nothing that catches God by surprise. He's got a handle on all this. It does not mean that He is the author of all of this. It just simply means that there's not a single part of it that's going to be out of His control. Now look at it with me. Haggai chapter number 2. and We'll jump in at verse number 21. Last part of the verse. The Bible says there, I will shake the heavens and the earth. Who is sovereign over the heavens? God is. That's important for us to know right now. Why? Because the United States just launched what? Space Force. Right? So we're sovereign over outer space now. I, by the way, I think it's kind of cool. Now, whether you like it, whether you don't, whether you think it's ridiculous or whether you don't, either way, I think it's pretty neat. Nevertheless, the United States is not sovereign over the heavens. Even though we have a space force now, God is sovereign over the heavens. Not only that, God is sovereign over the earth. There's a reason why I can't get on board with some of the climate stuff going on. It's because I don't think we're that big. Just plainly put to you, I don't believe that we are capable of changing something that God is sovereign over. My argument's that simple. It's that generic and that basic. Who is it that's sovereign over all the earth? It's God. God is the one who determines the seasons and the times. God is the one who moves things where He wants them. I think it's a very arrogant notion to think that somehow I can impact or affect that to a degree that's beyond God's control. Because I serve a sovereign God who's sovereign over the earth. Thirdly, God is sovereign over governments. Look at verse 22. And I will overthrow the throne of kingdoms. God is sovereign over the lost. And I will destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the heathen. 
God is sovereign over conflicts. Verse 22, again it says, And those that ride in them, I'm sorry, and I will overthrow the chariots and those that ride in them, and the horses and their riders shall come down, every one by the sword of his brother. God said, I will. I will. I will. Verse 23 teaches us that God is sovereign ultimately over each of our lives and each of our destinies. And this is the point I wanted to get to all morning. In verse 23, he says, In that day, saith the Lord of hosts, will I take thee, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shaltiel, saith the Lord, and will make thee as a signet, for I have chosen thee, saith the Lord of hosts. God is sovereign over the heavens. He's sovereign over the earth. He's sovereign over governments. He's sovereign over the lost. He's sovereign over all these conflicts that we see. But know that what God really wants to be sovereign over is your life. He has a plan for you, a purpose for you. Turn with me to Romans chapter 8. The last place we'll turn. We're going to read this and we'll be done. Romans chapter number 8. Such a comforting truth. I don't want it to be a conflicting truth. And the way it can be a conflicting truth is by saying, well, if God is sovereign, then why does He allow this or allow that? And again, I've told you that God's not allowing that. If you want to know why I believe, why I believe that different eras and different things went on as long as they did, for the exact same reason that God said what He said to Moses about Pharaoh and the land of Egypt. He hardened Pharaoh's heart so that ultimately at the end of it all, he could relinquish once and for all this thought that there are many, many gods in charge of all these different things. There's only one true God. He's getting that point across. I could say that same thing about each of these different parts and areas of history that we question God's sovereignty over. No, and rest assured, God is still sovereign. Romans chapter number 8, this idea that God is sovereign over our lives. I want to drive it home with this passage of Scripture. Look at verse 28. The Bible says, And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to His purpose. For whom He did foreknow, He also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of His Son, that He might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom He did predestinate, them He also called. And whom He called, them He also justified. And whom He justified, them He also glorified. What shall we then say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? If the sovereign, almighty, holy God of the universe is for us, who can be against us? I don't care what the movement is. I don't care how big it is. If God be for us, who can be against us? He that spared not His own Son, but delivered Him up for us all, How shall He not with Him also freely give us all things? Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. Who is He that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather that is risen. Again, who is even at the right hand of God? Who also maketh intercession for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril of sword? As it is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, In all these things, we are more than conquerors through Him that loved us. If He is truly your God, and you are truly His child, who can stand against you? Who can stand against us? A group of believers who serve the same true sovereign God.
You and God really do make up the majority. Why? Because you serve us. Not because of who you are, but because who God is that you serve. Let's pray.